Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Coming up on this week's program, Florida's Maritime Heritage, the sketchbook of Philip Ayer Sawyer, 1938. And all that documented information then would go into the archive at the Smithsonian and uh, be there for uh, use by future generations. And that's exactly what Hams did. Peter Matheson, author of Killing Mr. Watson, is a novel, but it's going to be based, centered around the backcountry, the poaching, the egret trade, the gators, the cypress lumbering, all of the environmental rapine that was taking place in Florida. The real first Thanksgiving was in Florida. All that and more coming up on Florida Frontiers. Sailboats, steamships, Seminole canoes, and many other vessels are documented in Florida's Maritime Heritage, the sketchbook of Philip Ayer Sawyer, 1938, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. Dan Smith, who edited the work, discovered the unpublished sketchbook at the Florida State Archive in Tallahassee. You know, I wish now I could remember how it came to be that I uh, first found the uh, sketchbook, but I just simply don't remember. I know it was quite a few years ago. And I was in the library for some other purpose. I suspect I was probably uh, looking for information about the uh, Oklawaha steamboats that I was uh, interested in at the time. And uh, I'm, uh, I guess uh, the uh, librarian there, probably Deborah uh, at that time, uh, brought some material out from the back room, literally, and the sketchbook was among that material. That's when I first saw it, and I was fascinated with the book. I do remember that it wasn't particularly related to what I was uh, looking for at the time, but I made some notes, and then many years later I got more interested, got to thinking about it, and uh, 
on a few occasions that I had to go back to the library uh, looking for material of one sort or another. I, in a manner of speaking, I checked on the sketchbook, I think uh, in part making sure it was still there. And um, it seems to be uh, um, well cared for, still in the back room. Part history and part art, the 1938 sketchbook of Philip Ayer Sawyer contains hundreds of detailed drawings that preserve Florida's maritime heritage. Dan Smith. First, it has on the cover, it's a hardbound, it's a spiral bound uh, 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 notebook, um, and, uh, or sketchbook, I should say, and, and uh, quite weathered looking, although the individual pages are in uh, extremely good condition. But on the cover is taped a, uh, a typed note, a fairly crudely typed message, and I reproduced that, uh, that uh, note in the, um, in the reproduction of the sketchbook. But on that little uh, note taped to the cover, Sawyer has uh, indicated uh, what it's all about. He says, in essence, uh, these sketches were done between March and August 1938 as part of the Florida Merchant Marine Survey. Uh, it is hoped that eventually they will go to illustrate a manuscript on Florida's maritime heritage or worse to that effect. And he says, uh, whatever becomes of the sketchbook, key, please keep the pages intact. And, is, and has signed his name on the bottom of that little sketch. And then inside the sketchbook you find, uh, I think it's 30 or 40 pages of, uh, of uh, sketches. Um, each page uh, there is a, a pen and ink uh, a drawing of a vessel uh, on the right-hand pages. He did no uh, sketching on the left-hand pages and uh, on the backs of the pages. But he or someone has uh, taped very carefully to almost every page anywhere from one to as many as ten other sketches uh, done on other sheets of paper, of course. some heavyweight, some lighter weight, but those sketches have been carefully taped onto the pages of the sketchbook. So although there may be 30 some odd pages to the sketchbook, there's well over 100 uh, pages of individual, of individual pages, uh, each showing a, a vessel. Some of the sketches are very, very detailed. They're all pen and ink. Um, some are quite detailed. Um, one or two of the others you would almost say are crude uh, so it's uh, quite a mixed bag of, uh, of artwork. But the pages are all annotated, virtually all of the images, I think essentially every one, is annotated with the name of the vessel and most with some information about the vessel. Uh, you can see where Sawyer has uh, scratched out uh, some information and replaced it. You can see uh, uh, pencil uh, notations, uh, but basically the sketchbook is a record of what he found during those months in 1938 as he traveled afield from Tampa, uh, finding, locating, drawing uh, vessels. Um, the, the, the vessels that are illustrated, uh, some are drawn from the vessels themselves. Some are clearly drawn from uh, photographs, uh, paintings included in the, uh, they're not all vessels. He uh, includes uh, uh, very nice uh, sketches of individuals um, who were in one way or another in, associated with maritime trade. Some are historic figures. Um, so all in all, to me, uh, the sketchbook is a compilation of imagery which uh, captures 
a considerable amount of Florida's uh, maritime heritage. In the early 1930s, traveling salesman and boat builder Eric Steinlein approached Frank Taylor at the Works Progress Administration about the possibility of creating a program to document boats in Maryland's Chesapeake Bay. The Historic American Merchant Marine Survey, or HAMS, was born. In uh, the early 30s, uh, Steinlein was a book salesman uh, who wished he was doing something other than that. He had the idea that from what he had learned about, uh, clearly a man, incidentally, he was uh, very interested in and knowledgeable about uh, shipbuilding and uh, nautical uh, environment. He was from the Northeast, uh, apparently quite a lover of the Chesapeake and uh, and the maritime uh, waters up there. And uh, he had this idea that perhaps a man could make a living during those hard times if he could... uh, um, Uh, Perhaps he could make a living by uh, getting somebody to pay him to go out and uh, find and document, uh, compile information about historic uh, vessels. And um, he took that idea to a museum in the Northeast. Uh, They thought it was an intriguing idea, but they didn't have any money to fund it. So they suggested that he see if the WPA would fund that as one of their uh, arts projects, part of uh, what was called Federal One under WPA. And uh, they told uh, Steinlein that uh, uh, the WPA, if they funded it, he would have to have a federal agency as a sponsor. And uh, they suggested he inquire at the Smithsonian and see if he could interest them in helping with the project. So Steinlein uh, next went to the Smithsonian and he found a man there, one of the directors whose name was Frank Taylor, um, who had oversight of uh, what little uh, maritime uh, uh, material was in the Smithsonian at that time, and most of what they had, collections of ship models, uh, some uh, photography and that sort of thing, as I understand it, was in the Smithsonian because it was material left over from some of the scientific field projects that they had been involved in. Um, They were not, uh, they didn't have a maritime museum per se, in other words. Uh, T- Taylor indicated in a, in a uh, memoir many years later that he surprised himself by uh, being as interested he was as he was in what uh, Steinlein uh, wanted to do. And uh, indeed, uh, Taylor was able to convince his superiors at the Smithsonian to take on the job of being a sponsor for the Hams Project, uh, whereupon Taylor found himself named uh, the uh, co-director uh, Steinlein would be the director of HAMS, the Historic American Merchant Marine Survey. And from that point on, then they sat down to figure out just how they were going to do what they proposed to do. And the gist of it was that um, unemployed uh, uh, maritime uh, marine architects, uh, uh, draftsmen, uh, 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 nautical personnel, people, people knowledgeable of nautical affairs, who were out of work. You had to be out of work to be supported by the WPA. But they would try to line up enough of those people to put together uh, surveys in the field. Uh, They divided the country into regions and uh, then uh, set out to find uh, directors for those regions who could uh, organize some people to work in the field to find, measure, um, uh, um, uh, reduce those measurements to... uh, uh, drafted figures, and basically what's called taking the lines off the vessels. Um, collect and uh, compile enough information, in a manner of speaking, so that uh, someone could use that information to rebuild those vessels if they wanted to do that. 
And all that documented information then would go into the archive at the Smithsonian and uh, be there for uh, use by future generations. And that's exactly what Hams did. The marine architects and draftsmen who worked for Hams documented hundreds of vessels in different regions of the United States. As Dan Smith explains, Philip Ayer Sawyer, who worked in Florida, was the only artist participating in the Hams project. Sawyer was a unique individual as far as the project because he was the only artist on board. Uh, Taylor uh, tells an interesting story of uh, a man, a, a small gray man, he described him as, uh, showed up unannounced at his office door just when they were getting organized with Hams in Washington. And uh, Sawyer had brought with him uh, armloads of paintings of vessels, and uh, he wanted to donate those to the Smithsonian. And, and by the way, could he get a job as part of Hams? Uh, he was an artist, but he obviously had a uh, tremendous uh, love for interest in knowledge uh, in uh, nautical affairs. In fact, those paintings that he brought to, to Taylor to donate to the project, uh, he had painted all of those while he was snowbound or icebound uh, in his little sailing boat on the Chesapeake that winter. This would have been in early 1936. Uh, Taylor hired him on the spot, and uh, as he says, Taylor said in a uh, subsequent uh, memoir, they gave him a little camera, a few rolls of film, and a little bit of travel money and told him to go down to the Carolina coast and then to the uh, Gulf Coast west of Florida and basically find, uh, draw, sketch, paint, photograph, anything that he found that looked like uh, it had... uh, historic interest uh, uh, in a nautical, uh, uh, historic nautical uh, interest. So Sawyer's contribution uh, was unique to the uh, uh, project in that uh, he provided uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, what uh, Steinlein uh, later indicated in his memoir about the project. He indicated that uh, uh, Sawyer, a little bitty fellow, he called him, uh, incidentally Sawyer would have been uh, uh, nearing 60 at the time he signed on with the project. But he says the uh, little bitty fella did really good work and he was worth every bit of the $30 a month or whatever it was we paid him. Uh, so uh, both Taylor and Steinlein were impressed with the quality and detail of the drawings and the uh, artwork that uh, Sawyer did. He added a unique perspective to the uh, data, the drawings, the the um, line drawings and the engineering uh, documentation that was done uh, otherwise by by the other people in the project. Dan Smith is editor of Florida's Maritime Heritage, the sketchbook of Philip Ayer Sawyer, 1938, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. Smith has made Sawyer's dream of creating a book from his historic sketches a reality. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. In addition to producing this program, the Florida Historical Society maintains the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, hosts the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region, manages the historic Rossiter House Museum, publishes books about Florida history and culture, and much more. 
Although we're the statewide historical society, we're not funded by the state, and we depend on membership support. Please visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. When the Spaniards founded St. Augustine in Florida nearly 450 years ago, They proceeded to found our nation's first city government, first school, first hospital, first city plan, first parish church, and first mission to the native populations. It is our nation's city of centuries, founded one year following the death of Michelangelo and the birth of William Shakespeare. Not until 42 years later would English Jamestown in Virginia be founded, Not until 56 years later would the pilgrims in Massachusetts observe their famous Thanksgiving. St. Augustine's settlers celebrated the nation's first Thanksgiving over a half century earlier, on September 8, 1565. Following a religious service, the Spaniards shared a communal meal with the local native tribe. The menu was a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans, accompanied with ship's bread and red wine. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. went to Paris looking for answers questions that bothered him so A South Florida developer was inspired by the streets of Paris and some of his work still survives today. Janie Gould has more. During the 1920s land boom, Royal Park started to spring up in Central Vero Beach. It was going to be the equal of anything in South Florida, with lovely Mediterranean-style homes, a golf course, and a boulevard lined with cafes and shops. Royal Park was the brainchild of developers Waldo Sexton and Walter Buckingham. Its centerpiece was two rows of royal palms that lined the two main roads of Royal Park. Buckingham's grandson, John Unruh of Vero Beach, remembers the palms. It was very stately looking, but also somewhat exotic looking, sort of along the lines of what you might see down in Palm Beach or Coral Gables. Only a few of those palms are left. Oh yeah, there's a few survivors, but you have to look for them. They're very tall at this point and slowly dying off. I don't know whether it's hurricanes or freezes or newcomers who didn't know what they were, but there's, there's just a few left. Now, U.S. 1, where it goes east and west, 
was going to be a miracle mile like Coral Gables, maybe? That's what they were thinking? Waldo had been to Paris or seen a postcard of Paris, as the story goes, and with these wonderful wide streets and wide boulevards with shops and stores along the side with archways and big sidewalks so there could be outdoor cafes. So that's how they laid out this street, wider than most roads were back then. US-1, you mean? Well, it's US-1 now, but then it was going to be this Parisian-style street to help sell their property there. How far did it get with commercial retail development along that street? Not very far, I guess. Not very far. Anytime there's a boom, there's always a bust soon behind, and there was in this case. The Parkway Hotel was a good example of what they had in mind there. Really, there's little else left of that original idea. And that hotel, now an antique shop, has the arches, looks a little bit like Worth Avenue. So I guess the whole street was going to be like that. That was the plan. You often wonder, why does US-1 stop going north-south all of a sudden in Vero Beach? Well, but later when the uh, government came along to put US-1 all the way down the coast of Florida, as they were laying out the highway, which basically tracked Old Dixie, the planners saw this big, wide road already laid out, Waldo... uh, And, of course, Walter were glad to let them have it. So US-1 suddenly takes an east-west turn there. And, of course, from that, the Miracle Mile was born in what would be a commercial district later. There are some houses in Royal Park of that vintage. Maybe, what, a couple dozen? Just a few. They're very easy to spot. There are some beautiful old homes that were built during that time frame. There was a golf course with the Royal Palms, the allure of living in exotic Florida. The golf course they built was one of the first in the area, right? Yeah, one of the very first. There are some early residents who can remember seeing my grandfather and Waldo and some of their engineers out plotting out and laying out where the golf course was going to go. The unfortunate thing, though, Janie, is the bus did come, and this was going to be a beautiful subdivision and a beautiful project. But before they could fulfill their dream, things went bad, and there was the Depression looming. It basically ended up going for the taxes. But the city did buy out the golf course and uh, turned it into, eventually, the Vero Beach Country Club. The Depression came, but your grandfather, of course, stayed on and was involved in numerous businesses over the years, real estate, insurance. Of all the ventures that your grandfather was involved in, what do you think was his favorite? He found romance in citrus. He loved the citrus business and found it exciting and just a wonderful thing. John Unruh is an attorney. He and his family live in the old Buckingham homestead. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. He went to Paris looking for answers to questions that bothered him so. This is Florida Frontiers. Our state's unique environment has often appeared as a kind of character in hundreds of novels and nonfiction books. Bill Dudley talks with an award-winning novelist who feels that some of his best work is set in the wilderness of South Florida. On a winter's morning near the edge of Payne's Prairie, south of Gainesville, thousands of sandhill cranes congregate on a grassy savanna. Novelist and nonfiction writer Peter Matheson has stopped here to see them. There's something about them, which is their bearing, is very impressive. And of course, they're enormous. They're very big birds. The, the sand hills up here at Alachua Prairie, that's a very, very well-known flock of cranes. Matheson, now in his 80s, remembers one of his first trips to Florida and a drive along the Tamiami Trail with his parents. I saw this extraordinary bird I'd never seen before in my life, and I made them stop the car, and, I, and then I got loose, and I was out on the highway, and I was 
running around. They had to sort of corral me to get me back in the car. It was a swallowtail kite, and I had never seen one, and I just about flipped out. Although he prefers to be known as a novelist, Matheson won the National Book Award in 1978 with The Snow Leopard, a nonfiction account of an expedition through the Himalayas. Meanwhile, writing for national magazines, he championed Florida's environmental causes, saving the corkscrew swamp, stopping the proposed Miami jet port, and others. In the late 1970s, he began making notes for a book that would encompass many Florida environmental issues. It's a novel, but it's going to be based, centered around the backcountry, the poaching, the egret trade, the gators, the cypress lumbering, all of the environmental rapine that was taking place in Florida. Looking for a unifying story theme for the book, he remembered a trip with his father to the 10,000 islands in the state's southwestern corner many years before. I was going by Chatham River, the mouth of Chatham River, where it comes out of the 10,000 islands there. We were on a boat, my dad's boat, and he said there's a house about two three miles up that river. You couldn't get a boat up that river anymore, oyster bars and sandbars. But he said that it belonged to a man named Watson who was killed by his neighbors, and that fact really stuck in my brain. And also that it was the only real house in the Everglades at that time. That stuck with me. That was, must have been about 17 then. And then later on, when I was doing this big novel idea I had based in the environment and Indian people and wildlife, I remembered that man that lone house out there, and it just seemed like a narrative device I could use to tie the rest together. 1991 saw the publication of Killing Mr. Watson, the first in a trilogy of novels that tells the true story of legendary Everglades pioneer Edgar Watson, a complex man who was at once a successful planter and family man, as well as an outlaw and a vengeful killer. He was so much a legend. There was so much misinformation about him, even Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, in the Sea of Grass, she has three pages on Watson, and every single fact is wrong. All this misinformation was repeated in every account in Florida that, that dealt with Watson, and a lot of them did. I interviewed everybody over 90 in southwest Florida at one point, but they didn't know the truth either, and I had to take a common thread from them all. The graveyards are the best place by far. Hard facts, incised on stone at the time. You could more or less trust them. In 2008, Matheson again won the National Book Award for Shadow Country, what he calls a distillation of the three Watson books into one. It remains a unique Florida narrative. It's an important book for a lot of Floridians because it, it does, brings forward that aspect of Florida. I mean, enormous wilderness area. We still have, to this day, I mean, a remnant population of panther. You know, back of the coast is a, it can be a pretty wild place. I think Floridians are, are proud of that wild history too. You know, this place, especially southwest Florida, the glaze was kind of the bottom of the dregs and it was people who were fugitives, deserters from the Civil War, outlaws, poachers, hunters, Spanish in and out, uh, fighting and piracy. So I think that aspect of Florida is, is terrific. It's always what's interested me. At 81, Peter Matheson is still active, speaking out and writing on issues like racism, equality, and the environment. A lifelong naturalist, he leads bird safaris around the world. His 2001 book, The Birds of Heaven, Travels with Cranes, described the mythical and spiritual qualities of cranes worldwide, including Florida. They're given credit for great wisdom and harmony and bird leadership and speaking for other birds. Wherever they go, wherever the cranes are, and I think it's partly because they have a very dignified, attractive bearing. They appear in the Florida literature, you know, in the yearling and places like that. They're 
their crane accounts, and uh, their crane accounts in, in my book, Shadow Country, too. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. This week and every week, we're thankful for the best public radio stations in Florida, WMFE, WUWF, WJCT, WFIT, WQCS, and WXEL. Please join us here again next week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.